0: To report of shots fired. The Coroner Talk podcast takes you behind the scenes with coroners, clinicians and death investigators from around the world to provide training, news and interviews from leading experts in the area of death investigation and scene management bringing real stories and solid training together in one source
1: Now, here's your host
0: Darren Dake.
1: Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Coroner Talk. Remember, it is the only podcast in iTunes dedicated to the men and women serving in the field of death investigation and those supporting roles. Of course, that includes EMS and fire and police. All of those are part of the Corner Talk community. Now, there are other podcasts out there uh, dealing with uh, uh, police issues. There's some fantastic fire department podcasts out there. And there are some uh, 911 dispatch podcasts out there. One of the best ones that I know of is Within the Trenches, and I listen to that quite regularly. And the fire podcast that I listen to most of the time is Firefighter Training Podcast. So these are great podcasts. If you're in that field as well, you would probably want to go over and start listening uh, to those because you're going to uh, you know, get more uh, in your field. But don't stop listening to Corner Talk. Just add that to your weekly listen. Today we have a guest, a returning guest, uh, Dr. Michelle Docher. She's coming back on. You remember uh, several weeks ago she was on talking about hoarding and hoarding behavior and the dangers of hoarding. Well, today we're going to talk about the psychological autopsy. Now, psychological autopsies is a little hard to do um, on a dead person. You might think so, but just wait. And psychological autopsies help us in a lot of ways to determine cause and manner of death and help us in our investigation. So we're going to talk to Dr. Michelle Dosher in just a moment about psychological autopsies. But I want to remind you about some free training. We all like free training. Again, the Corner Talk podcast is all about training. And if you want to receive a free 12-week email training program, you can go to cornertalk.com forward slash investigator. Again, cornertalk.com and then hit that forward slash there by the question mark and then type in investigator. And that's going to take you to a landing page. You simply give me your name, email address, and immediately you will start receiving uh, every week a training program that actually has some text to read and then a link to go to a video that it better explains that. And it progresses you through a, a cycle for 12 weeks. And then in 12 weeks, uh, you know, that kind of that ends and you can uh, take up some other training. But that's 12 weeks worth of free training. It's good training. It's parts of other bigger programs. And a lot of people have taken it already. And I have gotten a lot of great comments from that training. So, again, cornertalk.com slash investigator. It will automatically start and you get 12 weeks of free training. Now, as this episode comes out live, uh, it's December 11th, 2017. That's the day that this podcast gets released. And we are within two weeks of Christmas of 2017, and we are within 10 days of my turning 50. Now, I don't think I have a real problem with turning 50, but, you know, everybody else around me seems to have a problem with it, I guess, uh, or, or make fun of me about it, but turning 50. So, you know, those of you out there that's 50 and above, I guess I'm coming to your club here and I don't know when I start getting my AARP cards. Maybe I'd be 55 for that. I'm not sure. But almost 50 years old. Hey, you know what? It's a landmark because every day that I am not naked on one of y'all's tables is a good day for me. So come on, 50, and that's fine. And then just a couple of days, a few days after that is Christmas. Christmas is a great time of year. Love celebrating Christmas, not only uh, with my church family, but also with my my family at home. My wife, my kids, my grandkids love Christmas. Uh, when you give grandkids, if you don't have grandkids yet, just wait. Christmas is a whole lot better when you have grandkids. So just if you have grandkids, you know what I'm talking about. If not, just wait. You will understand. That's why they're called grandkids. Okay, they're grand. They're better than your kids. I told my kids that they were. Just evil necessities on the way to my grandkids. And believe me, you will agree when you get there. All right, one last reminder before we get into this conversation with Dr. Dosher. The Medical Legal Death Investigation Online Academy will start January 13th. You still have time to get registered for that. We have a few spots still open. If you're thinking you're going to register for it or get give it to somebody as a Christmas gift or something like that, you need to get started on that because, of course, uh, you know I, we do have some signups after the first of the month normally on these, uh, but we're getting close, and so we will accommodate you if at all possible. Uh, but please don't delay too long. If you're thinking about jumping in, then at least get an email started. Let me know that uh, you're going to come in after the first of the year or something, and we can work out those arrangements out with you. But it starts January 13th. You'll want to be pre-registered prior to that. Again, you can go to coronerschool.com. Again, coronerschool.com. And again, it's not just for coroners; it's for death investigation as a whole, police, EMS. And, of course, uh, medical examiners and coroners. So coronerschool.com, you can find out everything there. And I look forward to getting the conversation started with you. All right, let's get into this conversation I had with Dr. Dosha. We're going to talk about psychological autopsy. Um, I learned quite a bit through this conversation, and I know you will, too. Uh, how can psychological autopsies help you? Uh, what can it be used for when it comes to cause and manner? And do we do those on the dead or just the living or both? How does that uh, come into play in your investigation? So any further delay, let's get into that conversation.
0: Adjust your earbuds, turn up those speakers, and hang on. It's now time for this week's featured conversation.
1: All right, joining me today on the phone, as I introduced earlier, is Dr. Michelle Dosher. She was on the show a while back talking about hoarding, and today we're going to talk about psychological autopsy. Uh, Dr. Dosher, welcome to the show today.
2: Thank you so much. Glad to be back.
1: So why don't you uh, give us just a little bit of information about how people can contact you. Um, We're going to talk about it again at the end, but let's get that up front here. How can someone contact you if what we talk about today, they want to know more information or to be able to uh, maybe hire you in on a case or something like that?
2: Well, the easiest and best way would be just to send me an email to mindluth.net.
1: And you heard that right, folks, mind sleuth. And that's what we're going to talk about today is being a mind sleuth. So let's just introduce the topic, psychological autopsy. So, uh, Michelle, give me kind of a 30,000-foot view of what a psychological autopsy is, and then we'll kind of narrow it down. Okay, sure.
2: Well, my definition, I guess you would say, would be it's just basically information relating to the body and mind of the decedent.
1: Simple as that. Okay, just just who they were, who they are, things like that? Exactly. Uh,
2: Specifically, you know, in equivocal death analyses or uh, like more recent events where we have mass shootings and we're trying to determine motivation, uh, whether it be violent or nonviolent. But it gives us a way to look, per se, as the Greeks might have said, see with our own eyes, you know, possible intentions of the decedent. And uh, it's actually not a new concept. It's been around since the 1950s.
1: So in a physical autopsy, we know that the the body is cut, it is opened up, uh, the organs are removed, we look at everything, we try to uh, determine cause and manner based upon what the docs see. And uh, because of that, then we get a better understanding many times, not always, but many times of why the person died or how they died or what the mechanics of their death is. And and because we've opened everything up and looked inside. So psychological autopsy would be uh, people of your profession then opening up our minds, so to so to speak Uh, Certainly not in the same way the pathologist does. Um, And and knowing who we are as a person, now we're going to to talk about live people and dead people, but let's talk for a minute about the dead people. How do you do a psychological autopsy on someone that's dead?
2: Well, basically what you're doing is a type of forensic interview, okay? So instead of just interviewing a person, you're going to be interviewing many people. People that were friends families, victims, coworkers, and what we're trying to do is, you know, you want to touch on all areas of that person's life, their lifestyle, their social circles, their emotional and behavioral patterns, um, cognitive features, um, their hobbies, Um, and also something that a lot of times people forget is, you know, touch on their successes. See where they have been. Look at their goals. Um, Then, more importantly, you know, like you guys determine, like you said, your determination, you're looking uh, for signs and clues of recent, something recent that's happened or whether it's, you know, drug analysis. Well, we're also looking the past 12 months, which we consider recent, you know, where there's stressors, triggers, stress. Um... We want to find out how they related with other people, what we call interpersonal communication and behavior. But also by doing this, we hope to find out who that person was as far as intrapersonally.
1: Now you mentioned 12 months. Why is 12 months what you guys go to? Not not the last three months, but 12 months. Why is that important?
2: Well, because a lot can happen in 12 months, but yet... It's still not that long ago. And think about it. Most people, if someone asks you a date, you really don't have problems saying, oh, yeah, that was last spring or that was last fall. If you go past 12 months, then it becomes, uh, was that the summer of 2000 and uh, or, you know, uh, this way, just use our short version, a heuristic, and go, okay spring, fall, summer, winter, what time of year?
1: There's right.
2: really no science behind it.
1: Right, but did, 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 I guess what we're looking for too is something that could have been, let's just think, let's keep our minds thinking about suicide, for instance. If we're trying to determine something that's kind of questionable, uh, whether or not there's, mm-hmm. there's a suicide, and, and there's enough indications it could be, but maybe not, and we never rule suicide unless we can really uh, – summarize that correctly that it was suicide so we're, we're doing a psychological autopsy what little bit maybe we can do as investigators but then someone like you comes in and we're really looking at this case 12 months then it goes back to maybe they lost their job six eight months ago but that wasn't the end point but you build mm-hmm. up from there uh you know that is that what we're looking for is how someone's personality and things have changed over 12 months Exactly,
2: because that's why, you know, when I mentioned that you want to dig deep, you want to find out their successes, their goals. You don't want to just focus on the downhill slides. You want to see, like you said, where did they start going downhill? Were their sleeping habits changing, um, their eating habits?
1: Right, and it's Simple not necessarily whether they uh, sleep or don't sleep, eat or don't eat, is whether they've changed that habit, what they do, and, and when did that change, correct?
2: Correct, correct. And then, obviously, in asking these questions, like you said, you know, there are key questions. First and foremost, what do we, uh, like we always want to know, why? Why did this happen? Or why did this person commit, quote, suicide, Or was it an accidental death? Was it autoerotic asphyxiation? Um, What led up to this? Then, you know, when we start digging in there, then another key factor would be, okay, why, why now? Why at this time? And so that's where the 12 months of going back and basically analyzing and seeing any patterns that'll help us there. And then ultimately... You know, we can help you guys go, was it natural, accidental, suicide, or homicide?
1: Well, you made a mention there about why now, and that is something, you know, again, with what we do a little bit as investigators. uh, Why, if we do think it's suicide, we do ask that question, why now? What was the stressor or what was the reason for it to be now and even if there was a note I don't the notes are so limited at suicides that once I see one I'm more suspicious of it than not so uh, mm-hmm. I, I want to verify what's in that in that note or that letter you know but that's what we look for is is kind of the final straw uh, you know something a di- diagnosis or a, or a family event or what's that final straw but I have also found uh, if we look at that final straw it doesn't seem to be a very big deal to us. But if we talk to family and friends, like you're saying, basically, we're doing a little bit of a psychological autopsy in a way. We find out that this had been building up to what we would consider maybe this final straw. So we're also, I guess, untrained psychologists doing a little bit of this psychology, psychological autopsy as well when we're just trying to find out history. Because history is one of the big things I teach on and work in any suicide. You have to know the history.
2: Exactly. And and if you don't know the history, how are you going to build on it? And you know, and the other thing too, Darren, and I think you kind of touched on it earlier, was um, was this strange? Was this out of place? Was this abnormal behavior? Well, as investigators, we go in and we may see something and go, wow, that's just really weird behavior. And I'll give you a perfect example. I was talking um, to a couple not too long ago and The husband is suffering from PTSD. The wife has been getting rather anxious in the evenings because she says her husband insists on sleeping with a knife nearby. And she's like, you know, is he losing it? And I'm like, well, have you asked him? So in talking to him, he's like, you know, it's just part of my training. When we were out in the field, when we were overseas, you never went to bed unless you had your knife by your side. And I just kind of laughed. I said, it's this teddy bear, okay? It gives him comfort. So for someone on the outside, and if she was telling this to someone that did not have a clue about his background or ask him, I would consider it abnormal behavior. I would consider it, you know, possible dangerous behavior. Who
1: wouldn't? Well, certainly when you don't know, you know. I, I carry a gun on and off duty. I, I have a gun with me pretty well twenty four hours a day. And on my nightstand is a lamp, alarm clock, and a pistol. I take it off my side, put it on there. It's, it's concealed. You couldn't, you wouldn't tell it if I was in civilian clothes. But I always have it. Well, it's always on the nightstand. But there would be people would say, "That's odd. Why do you always have a gun? Or why is there a gun lying beside you?" Well course years ago i've had people shoot at my house when i was working narcotics years ago and they shot Mm -hmm. holes in my house and so you know everything was fine but you know having a gun locked in a gun cabinet somewhere in another room and something happens that does me no good and so am i scared no um but that's just my, like you said, teddy bear, I guess that that's my comfort. If I know that right. my, it's there, I, it's the same one I use. It's the same one I carry. It's always there. I'm familiar with it. I'm intimate with it. And it gives me a little bit of peace of mind to protect my family. So again, I exactly. agree with what you said. If someone would said, Hey, oh, I've seen a gun there on there. He'd probably, he may be suicidal. He cares. He has a gun on his nightstand. I've seen it the other day. Well, again, that's, you got to know the history of why. Right. Right. And I think a lot of people have strange behaviors that, you know, if we knew if we knew what everybody did, you know, there are a lot of strange behaviors out there. But it's the personal side as well that the, the psychological autopsy can tell us not just about suicide, but but maybe about the uh, we always want to know the activities of the last 72 hours before death, even if it's not a suicide, um, because that right. tells us what they were doing whether it be risky behavior or or whatever, does that play a part into what you're looking for as well?
2: Most definitely. You know, for instance, um, let's say that you're thinking it's possibly homicide, Uh, but this person is found, you know, many miles from their home, Uh, like you said, maybe in a part of town where they might have been participating in risky behavior. You start asking relatives, and friends, you know, and you may get, oh, no, 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 that is so not that person. That body must have been moved. Uh, You keep digging a little bit deeper. You look at social media. You talk to coworkers. Um, Well, maybe they had an altered personality. You start finding out that maybe they were living two different lives, one their family and close friends knew about, one that their coworkers and another set of friends knew about. So, yes, you have to keep asking, you know, the why question over, but also the what, why now, like you said, the time period, what caused that person to snap, per se, if it was, if it was a suicide, or... You know, you have a person, you have a shooter that seems to have everything that they could possibly want. Multiple houses, tons of money, friends, family. Why do they go into a hotel and crack open the window and start shooting at people below?
1: Yeah, and that, uh, you know, I I think I'm familiar with the case you're talking about. I think we all probably are. But, uh, you know, why does things like that happen? So that case, besides, what do you look for? to determine why a mass shooter decided to kill, you know, whether it be one of the theater shooters, whether it be the Las Vegas, what are you looking for on a live shooter situation?
2: And this one in particular is where the 12 month and possibly even longer is going to play a huge factor because yes, when they typically, like you said, they kill themselves when they know that, okay, law enforcement is either going to kill them or somebody else, a lot of times they'll kill themselves. But ideally, did they really intend on killing themselves when they came up with this plan? Because most of the time, the shooters do have a plan. It is well orchestrated up until a certain point. So what caused them to even want to do that? That's the question. Will we ever truly know No, but maybe we will find signs and maybe we can follow a pathway and just find clues and signs as to, as we mentioned earlier, how their behavior gradually started changing and talking with people. You know, he used to do this or she used to do this. They haven't done that in a long time. Or maybe he was saying certain things or maybe he just started visiting places out of the blue. It's... It's a hunt, (laughs) find, seek, ask. Uh, That's basically, it's just interview after interview. A lot of conversation, but most importantly, when I say interview, which is very important in interviews, is not that you're asking all the questions, but you're sitting there and you're listening. A lot of listening needs to take place.
1: You know, you're 100% right there is... Once you ask a question or get a conversation going with a family member or somebody in a case like this, let them talk. Because if you if you stop and, and have that awkward silence, generally they'll continue to talk. And it's it's then you start finding things out uh, over and above the question that you ask. You know, you mentioned about uh, we talked about talking to family and, and my wife, my husband wouldn't do that or my wife wouldn't do that. You know, rarely do we have family members that will agree right off that someone committed suicide. It's always either accident or homicide. Nobody wants to accept that someone committed suicide. So we have to, if we're going to rule it that way, we have to approve our case, so to speak, in in our investigation and our summary. Um, So that's where the psychological autopsy or history, as I call it, that I train on history comes in. But so, what is the difference? Of course, we're not psychologists. You know, we're not trained as you are. But but there are certain questions, certain things we can do, and you know. I don't maybe you interpret it differently but what is the difference maybe between what you do and what we would do on our lower scale when we start asking these questions
2: There's really not much difference because think about some of the questions that you guys ask you rarely will ask a yes or no question you ask open-ended questions because with yes and no questions or an, an or a question that can be answered with one or two words Sometimes come across as defensive or accusatory, but by kind of circling around the outside of that question and just gradually easing in, you open up the field for conversation. And like you said, if you'll just sit back and listen, I mean, what's one of the things we always do when we go to a crime scene? you watch, you watch around you, you take lots of pictures, anyone new that comes around, you take photographs and you just watch how people react and uh, you'd be surprised how much information you gain.
1: Right. Yeah, you're you're very correct in that and how people are on the scene who how they're acting and also uh, some people are acting different. Somebody may say that somebody else is acting different and that's the person you you know you really want to talk to. And and I know we're talk, talking a lot about suicide, but suicide or homicide, whichever um When we're asking the questions, again, opening the questions, getting the information out, one of the things that that I always like to do, too, is if I'm really trying to figure something out, is ask, who else do you know that might know more information? Or who might know Bob better? Or who might know Bob's personal life better? Generally, you'll get somebody say, well, you know, he's got a best friend, Dave, over there. He might know more. Uh, That's how would I recommend. Do you agree that that's to keep? to keep digging deeper or how should we continue with that?
2: Most definitely, because a part of the psychological autopsy is obviously you want it to be a conversation. You don't want them to feel like you're interrogating them, especially if it's close family and friends, but you also want them to realize that you're there for emotional support for them as well. And sometimes by just saying, you know, could you just tell me a little bit about Joe or, Carol or Tom, you know, what were some of the things they enjoyed doing? What what would, what did they do in their downtime? You know, what were projects they were working on? Just you you want to get a positive. You want those people that you're asking these questions and interviewing them. You want them to have happy memories. And when they have happy memories and they're not just focused on the fact that they have just lost someone, you'd be surprised how much information you can get, too get from that about their past and then you can gradually slide in and say oh so you know are they still going duck hunting with Jim well no you know about five months ago he sold his gun and you know just got rid of all of the decoys oh well why so well I don't know you know or they might say well he just didn't have time wasn't able you know to get off work that sort of thing but if they come back with a lot of, well, don't really know, hadn't really thought about that. You know what? You're right. You know, they they, they haven't been coming over for the family dinners lately. No, they never do go out with the kids anymore. Those, those are the answers that we're looking for, but we just try to ease into them and gently get to those answers.
1: Right. And, you know, one thing that we mentioned about it, talking to family, and I kind of hit it on it a while ago, but family sometimes does not know everything about the decedent um i mean that's where i say to talk to family like you say very gingerly give the conversation at that time though we do want to maybe come back and talk to them later but it's at the time that we need to find some information out because they're generally more helpful and more willing to talk about things then and later on they may not be as much but there's a lot of things family don't know Maybe the person was diagnosed with a, with something, or maybe they lost their job, or maybe they did live live that secondary life. That's, again, why I recommend asking family, who might know more? Who's his best friends, or who does he hang around with? or Because those people, once you get on the peripheral, are going to probably know the things a family doesn't. Because people hide things from family all the time. I'm sure you've ran right. into that.
2: Well, and something else, too, when you're asking them, you know, what what were some of their fears? Um, What were some of their phobias? Did they have phobias or fears? Well, you know, they hated water. They couldn't swim. Well, that's kind of ironic, you know, especially if they drowned, Um, you know, and I'm just giving that as a very simple example, but just by asking some of those open-ended questions and just, like I said, try to touch on everything, cognitive, behavioral, emotional, especially, um, you know, that's, you've got to keep just digging deeper and deeper.
1: Right. So let's change gears just a little bit and let's talk about the living a little bit more, um, psychological okay. autopsy in, the sh- in shooters. But let's say that, uh, and this may be getting way off base. So pull me back in if necessary, but let's say you've got a decedent and, uh, you, you know, you've, you've done a psychological autopsy the best we can on the decedent and we have a suspect, then, You know, we don't think it's a suicide and we want to start dwelling into the suspect's past or or maybe the wife or the husband, however it would be. So what are some of the things, again, this is a police issue and and probably more into you, but what are some of the things we want to start finding out about that person to get to know them better? They're alive now, so it's a a little harder, I think, to find that information out.
2: Okay, so you're talking the suspect that was possibly a shooter?
1: Yes. Or, well, yeah, or whatever, a suspect a shooter, or whatever, a in a homicide? Suspect in a homicide. Yeah, just a home invasion. Okay. Or, or, or if someone's dead in the home. You know, we always okay. look at the spouse maybe, but, you know, how do we determine, what, what, where should we go with those questions?
2: Okay. Basically, they're not going to be that much different because, as I mentioned earlier, um, psychological autopsies do not really differ in, than in a forensic interview. So in a forensic interview, we cover the same areas, your social circles, your lifestyle, your emotional behavioral patterns. So obviously, you don't ask that person, what's your emotional behavior patterns, But you can kind of punch buttons and you can see how they react to stress. You can see what causes a raised eyebrow. You can see, you know, if they're calm, cool and collected and it looks as though their heart rate never went up at all. Okay, so, you know, you're starting to look at different personality traits. They're really no different, but especially, though, with a forensic interview, you really, really want to keep it very much conversational at all costs. Do not, because sometimes when we, even though we have the best of intentions to interview and ask questions, we almost go into that accusatory mode, and it can fairly very easily just slip into an interrogation, which what are they going to do? The fences are going to go up, the walls are going to go up, and you're not going to get any information. Um, And you're always, you know, you want to be, hey, I'm not interrogating you. I'm just trying to find out some information. Someone gave me your name, said that you might be the best person to talk to. You hung out with this person. You're a coworker. You know, tell tell me a little something about you to help me understand them better. So when you kind of take the focus off of that person, that suspect, and you present it, present it to them in that manner, yes, I'm asking things about you, but it's to help me understand the decedent. Oh, okay. So I'm not being interrogated. You know, that's going through their mind. And then they start giving you a lot of information and you may find out, you know, How often were they together? What did they do together? What were some of the things that they did together? Perhaps maybe the friends and families had no clue they were doing together.
1: Did that help? Yeah. Yes. Because then once you know that information, (laughs) we certainly then uh, on the police side, uh, you know, can start. P- poking holes in that alibi or poking holes in what they're saying, or, oh, we had a great relationship. And then you find out peripherally that they've been fighting for six months and everybody else knew right. it, but yeah, things like that. So, well, let's talk about children for a second. Um, there, some people are are iffy and wary to talk to children, uh, you know, on uh, domestic violence uh, cases, uh, even on death cases and things like that. Uh, I always tell my, the investigators that children know way more then we give them credit for because they are always around and they are always listening. Even if you don't think your child is listening, they are be- because how many times have our children came up to a- us and asked us a question about something, you know, us and our spouse talked about two weeks ago. Well, we thought they were in bed mm-hmm. asleep, right? But no, they, are, they hear stuff. Um, but, yes. but children has to be approached a little differently. Can you give us some advice on, you know, how to approach a child to ask a question?
2: Most definitely. And unfortunately, this is just part of the system where this kind of fails us regarding children. Um, If a child comes forward and discloses something, whether it's physical, mental, sexual abuse, or as an eyewitness, the first thing that just pops into someone's mind is, okay, we've immediately got to ask them all the possible questions that we can think of right off the bat. And then when they hear enough then they're like, okay, I'm going to take you now to talk to someone else. And then the child has to repeat everything again. And then that person goes, oh, wow, we really need to get to a forensic interviewer. Okay. And we need to get this taped. Well, to make a long story short, unfortunately, a lot of times it's forensic interviewers, we may be third fourth or fifth down the totem pole and the child comes in kind of like oh boy i got to start all this again you know here's the story one more time well and i'm not saying this is just for children only but also adults we do it as well it's the way our mind works when we hear things we answer questions and then we repeat these things over and over Sometimes snippets of information that perhaps were in the form of a question find their way into our responses, also known as false memories or false responses. It's not that someone's trying to lie. It's just that's how our brains work. We don't remember incidences from A to Z. Perfect. We remember snippets or chunks of information. So it only makes sense when we're regurgitating it that sometimes a few snippets or chunks might get out of place. This is especially important when referring to children, when interviewing children, because their frontal parts of their brains are not as developed as the adult brain the connect between their limbic system or their emotional areas is not as developed as an adult brain. So I hate using the term short circuit, um, but let's just, it's more or less that the pathways that we eventually have are not fully developed yet. Um, There's not all the shortcuts that we eventually have and it affects them. Easier. You can you know, as far as false memories by interviewing them over and over and over again. Plus some children they just get to the point where they shut down and go, I'm not I'm not telling anybody else this. And you know what? They'll cross their arms and they're done.
1: Well, certainly because they're tired of telling it and or they're embarrassed. And another problem with doing describe doing it the way you described is again, stories change. So if we do have a criminal case, that's going to be a defense uh, you know, uh, or, or a prosecutor nightmare, you know, the defense is going to love it because we have three separate stories. And so, but because exactly. the child does sometimes change your story, not because they're lying, but because of things that you just mentioned. But I, I also teach investigators that um, when you're on the scene of something, um, let's say you're on a scene of a shooting and, and a woman is dead and there's a child there. Don't be afraid to ask the child, Hey, what's your name? And uh, Did you see what happened? Do you know who shot mom? Or do you know who shot this lady or whatever? A lot of times they do. And if you ask them, they'll tell you. Now, do you want to then, once they tell you, maybe uh, schedule an interview with someone like you or or something? Maybe. But I I don't think we should be afraid to ask a child a question on the scene. It's perfectly legal and perfectly fine to do so. And they normally know way more than we give them credit.
2: Most definitely. And here's another, just a tip, is especially if it's a small child that's maybe three, four, five years old, hand them a piece of paper and just say, you know, we have photographers here at the scene. They take pictures, but we also need a good artist. Are you a good artist? And what three-year-old is not going to tell you they aren't? Oh, of course, I'm the best artist. I draw pictures all the time. Hey, could you draw a picture of what you saw? And I will admit, you don't always understand by looking at it at first glance what the picture is, but then when you sit down with that child, they will point every teeny tiny aspect out to you and they will basically tell their story as they're pointing to the different areas of the picture. I've had children that literally have drawn me maps of city blocks and they showed me pathways. They showed me houses. They gave me descriptions of houses that I then was able to give to investigators. And they couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like we had just taken a photograph and handed it to them.
1: Right. That's a, that's amazing. And I know that uh, that i would never used that technique before, but uh, I may... If I ever find a need for that, use it. That's that's good because, uh, you know, my grandchildren draw all the time. And so, yeah, I understand what that's like. So they'd love to draw. Uh, so I think that would be a, a and then And then they can tell the story without actually telling you the story up front.
2: Exactly, because they're showing you. And, and a child loves teaching adults. They love to show adults things. They're not, like you said, they're not being questioned and put on the spot and having to ask, answer your questions they are showing you they are helping you they're a detective for you
1: (laughs) right i agree and when you give them uh make them feel good about a bad situation or talk to them and that's the other thing too is if you're at the scene then don't you know do everything you can not to scare the child you know you you want to get him out of the situation yes you've separated them you don't you know they don't necessarily need to be right there in the same room I, i get all that But introducing yourself and even getting on the floor with them or getting on the, sitting on the ground, sitting on the curb or wherever the child is, get down on their level and just, you know, be their friend, be their dad, be their grandpa, be their, you know, be someone that that cares for them and just say, hey, you're going through a really tough time here. What, you know, what, what do you know or what did you see? And of course, a little child we talked about, but even 10, 12, 13 years old, you know, they'll, they'll, they may open up to you if you're their friend. Now, teenagers... Teenagers are vile creatures, and they don't like talking to anybody. Now, you can get, you know, if it's a situation at the scene, sometimes you can befriend them quickly and say, you know, hey, what what happened? What did you see? And they'll tell you. But teenagers, you know, the by and large, some you know, depending on the demographics in the area, sometimes they don't like police either. Sometimes they're scared of police or what they do know what happened, but they're scared to tell uh, because they've put more thought into it. They've put more adult-type thought into it than what a four-year-old would, you know. Um, but teenagers still can be asked questions at the scene. And they a lot of times if you just befriend them and treat them, not like a child, but like an adult, uh, you'll probably get more from them than if you try to coerce them or treat them like a four-year-old.
2: And, you know, and another technique, too, might be obviously, like I said, you've constantly got someone taking photographs at a scene. Um, just, you know, you you always take pictures and not that the person is realizing that you're taking a picture of them. And this is what you might want to do. You might just want to walk up to the teenager, hand them a clipboard, excuse me, hand them a clipboard with some paper and just say, look, I know there's a lot of activity that's been going on. Um, I'm busy. You're busy. I don't want to hold you up. But if you saw anything, heard anything, know anybody that was in this area or saw someone you didn't recognize, could you just jot down a few notes? And if you don't mind, If you could leave your name, it could just be your first name would be fine too. And maybe give me a a number where I could text you or email you later. Do you mind doing that for me? They'll take your clipboard. Sure. No problem. Because once again, you're not corralling them into a corner and saying, okay, I have some serious questions I need to ask and I need to know if this is the whole truth and nothing but the truth. (laughs) What are they going to do? They're going to clam up.
1: Right, because then they feel threatened. Right. Right. Yeah. No, so and all that is very good, very good advice. I mean, we, we talked to gamma today about the decedents and live people, suspects and, and children, but 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 it all comes down to I think one thing is just ask questions of things you want to know to the people who may know them. And then find other people who may know more and just keep asking questions. Uh, and then you take all that information and you can surmise something from that information i i want to be careful there i don't want to say we guess or that we make stuff up but we certainly can get an idea of what occurred but now i I want to um i want to caution though what we don't want to do is make our mind up as to what happened and then ask the questions accordingly because uh I'm under the impression, I believe, that we can change someone's mind or someone's opinion based on how we ask questions to them. Is that not true?
2: Oh, that's most definitely true. Yes, you can basically, um, you may not intend to, but the way that you ask certain questions, you can make them feel like they're guilty, Um, they were in the wrong or they're dirty, not worth talking to, especially in cases where, you know, abuse of some sort. Um, So that's why I definitely stress the open-ended questions. And it's okay. Let that person know, you know what? I am here for you. If at any time you want to stop this conversation, never call it an interview, obviously. Anytime you want to stop this conversation, just let me know. You know, your mental mental wellness, being is more important to me right now than the information you may possibly can give me. You may have another time we could meet, you know, it's okay. And when you let them know that upfront in the same way, like when you're talking with children, Hey, I talk to kids all the time. Um, At any time you have a question, Hey, stop me. It's okay. You know, I'll answer your question. If you have a concern or if you don't feel like talking to me anymore, Okay, you can get up and go away. You know, you can leave. It's okay. And when you approach people that way, then they don't feel like they're being interrogated. They don't feel like they're being interviewed because, believe it or not, interview interrogation sometimes kind of sounds the same to some people.
1: Especially from police. I mean, we we have a way of coming across uh, a little aggressive sometimes. You know, we always talk about smiling when we, uh, customer service, smile when you're on the phone, smile when you're talking to somebody, because we can hear that smile through the phone lines, right? We can hear that smile uh, when someone's talking. Well, the same thing when you're talking to somebody and you, your bot, let's say you find someone, like you said, maybe disgusting or, or lower than you or something. Uh, You, the way you ask questions and the way you come at things, you're tone your body language will give them that idea of how you're thinking about them but not only them um, also what you th- what you're wanting them to say if you if you're wanting them to agree with you or disagree with you it's all in how you phase the question so how right. can we be open ended is really the only way we can ask a question without giving an answer right
2: exactly and you know you never start a conversation with the question you you most definitely want to know the answer to, Um, especially with the children, with the adolescents. You know, sometimes you may have to go around the block a couple times before you actually get to the meat of the investigation. And that's okay because psychological autopsies, um, they can take anywhere from weeks, months, a year or more. That's not uncommon. Uh, Forensic interviews, now typically, you know, 30 to 40 minutes, but I've been in interviews before where they were stopped and then, you know, reconvened later on down the road. And that's okay, too.
1: Right, right. Until we get the information we need to come to the conclusion we need. Well, all of this has been amazing, and of course, we barely even scratched the surface of what all of this is. Uh, but I, but I believe we've got some good jumping off points, and and you've gave me a lot of good suggestions that I've I've actually never thought about. So I appreciate that a lot. So I thank you again for Great. being on the show, but but let's end one more time with someone wants to get a hold of you. Someone wants to find you and ask you questions or uh, um, how can they, how can they get a hold of you uh, again? I think you mentioned it at the top of the show, but let's mention it again. Sure.
2: Um, you can go to my blog site, which is mindflute.net, and you can email me from there and my contact information is on there as well.
1: And let's go ahead for somebody that hasn't listened to the last episode. Not only do you do psychological autopsies, you also do something with some handwriting analysis. Tell us about that just real quick, and someone hasn't heard that. What can you help us out there on? Sure.
2: Um my research the past six and a half years has been on detecting different types of deception in handwriting. And the technique that I use is, as far as I know, uh, is the one and only one out there at this moment in time. But I strictly base everything on measurements. Um, It is not subjective. It's actually an objective analysis of handwriting. I'm not looking for personalities. I'm basically looking for cues where your thought processes change. And there are certain different types of cues that I have seen with deception along with cognitive load, meaning if a person is stressed or has a lot on their mind at the time.
1: Very interesting. So uh, that's something else that you do. Again, you can find that on your website, things like that. Somebody might have a case that they want you to weigh in on, and I would invite anybody to try to contact you. So, again, uh, Michelle, thank you for being on the show again. Uh, it's getting very close to Christmas. I, I hope you have a great Christmas holiday season with you and your family. And and if, if there's ever anything we can do for you at our end, please let us know.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me, and uh, best to you all.
1: All right. I'm back with you live. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Dozier. She is an amazing. Uh, person uh, really uh, does a lot for us at the, at the corner talk podcast and will for you as well. If you have a question, she's willing to answer a question for you. Uh, you know, if she's going to wade into the case completely, that, that may be a different issue, but if you just have a question or a concern or, or want to know maybe what direction to take, um, she's open to email. She's told me that if just just email her and ask her a question, she'll be glad to answer it. Uh, um, And then can help you out, get started in in one way or the other. And, you know, I'd love for you to reach out to her and just say, hey, I heard you on the podcast. You know, thank you. Great. Something. Just let her know that we're out there and and that we're listening. Uh, You know, she doesn't need anything by that, but it will certainly help her to understand that we are listening and like what she's saying. So, again, I want to thank you for tuning in again this week. If there's anything I can do for you, if you have questions, a certain training topic, anything you need from me, please reach out for me. Some of you have, and and I am working with some of you on some certain things. Uh, case review here or there, things like that. I'd love to help you in every way that I can. And remember, it, it, this is a holiday season. I, I, it doesn't matter what faith you are. It doesn't matter what religion you are. That's not the point. It is Christmas. It'll always be Christmas to me. But... It also is holidays, and they fall in the same thing. So it's time for family, it's time for friends, and above all, it's a time to be a blessing. Being a blessing to someone just means that you have brought something brighter into their life. It might only be a smile, it might be a check for a million dollars, but whatever you can do to bless somebody, to bring a little light and life into their life is what we need to do. Every day, find someone to be a blessing, and then it automatically comes back to you tenfold. Have a great rest of the year, everyone. Until next week, be safe.
0: Thanks for listening to Coroner Talk, a DSPN media production. Visit our website at coronertalk.com. And be sure to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash coronertraining. 3617-1024 scene on route to Morgue.